Welcome to AmiSites, a podcast that offers you access to thought leaders who can help you expand your entrepreneurial toolbox. Learn from seasoned entrepreneurs who have already walked in your shoes and can help you with your day-to-day business decisions. With your host, Ami Kassar. Ami is the founder and CEO of Multifunding, an advisory company that helps you grow and stay in control of your business. Hello and welcome. My name is Ami Kassar, founder and CEO of Multifunding. Since 2010, Multifunding has helped businesses achieve their biggest growth goals through creative and personalized funding solutions, working with hundreds of lenders across the nation. Joining us today is Tony Kanat. Tony is the CEO of the American Rental Association, a trade association representing 11,000 rental locations and over 1,000 manufacturers and suppliers to the equipment and event rental industry. Our main topics today will focus on managing a trade association through the pandemic. Welcome, Tony. Good to chat with you, Ami. Tony, tell me everything. Tell you everything. Well, I tell you what's first and foremost on my mind is hopefully getting past COVID once and for all. I think we've, you know, we've, we've been at this uh, crossroads a few times and, and thought we were there and then uh, we got reeled back into this thing. So if uh, hopefully with weather and being indoors and Omicron being you know, less, uh, generally having a less severe impact on people, all points to us getting to a more you know, normal business and personal environment uh, this spring and summer, I'm going to be a really happy camper. Let's let's back up the tape a little bit and tell us a little bit about the American Rental Association and you and your background, what you do and when you joined. Sure. So most of my experiences uh, in the corporate world, I'm, a, I'm an operations guy uh, at heart. Um, a process efficiency guy, you know, Six Sigma Black Belt is right in my wheelhouse. Whenever I, I see things, I'm always trying to figure out a better way to, to do it, right? A better way to make it happen, which is uh, not good relationship advice, but good on the, on the manufacturing and process side of things. So um, supply chain is obviously a, a big component of, of manufacturing and getting goods to where they need to go. So I spent about half of my career in supply chain and ended up falling backwards into my first association role, which was at the Institute for Supply Management as the uh, chief operating officer, which was great. Uh, now I was working with uh, right, a whole bunch of people that understood manufacturing and supply chain, which, uh, which was a really neat place to be. And it got me sort of hooked on, on the uh, association side of the house where you can have a really big impact on, on a on a large number of people, right, on a, on a broad scale across an industry. Um, so I really enjoyed what I was doing there. When the uh, American Rental Association opportunity uh, came across my desk, and I thought I'd, I'd take a shot at that. I didn't really understand a whole lot about rental, um, but uh, it, it seemed like a really neat opportunity. And as I started uh, doing my research and talking to people in the rental industry, uh, I was I was sold pretty immediately. So. November of 2016, uh, I replaced uh, Christine Werman, who had been uh, with the association for about 15 or 16 years. And um, I started, uh, started uh, understanding this industry a little bit better and figuring out what we needed to do to kind of support equipment and event rental um, for the long term. So tell us a little bit about your members and what they do and all that stuff. And then 
we'll dig in from there. Yeah. So our members, like I mentioned, uh, the sale for me was was all about working with really good people. You know, you get to a point in your life when that's what it all comes down to. The work is is the work, but if you're not doing it with people that you respect and that you enjoy being around, then you know the work can get old really fast. Our members, you know, first and foremost, are just the salt of the earth kind of people. Um, they're very embedded in their communities. Um, most of our members are smaller businesses. So let's say less than $3 million in revenue probably represents 85 to 90% of our members, uh, generally multi-generation owners of their rental stores, uh, typically might have one to three rental stores, you know, inside of a 30 mile radius and all they know is rental. I mean, that's how they, that's how they grew up. Uh, most of them, you know, on the equipment side would have started in a wash rack. So these are people that are renting anything from large construction equipment to small homeowner type equipment, you know, think of paint sprayers and generators and power washers, things like that, you know, everything up to uh, excavators and, and dump trucks. And they started in the store washing equipment, right? And talking to customers and hanging around mechanics and figuring out how to fix things and, and move through the ranks to, you know, become managers and then owners uh, of their stores. And then on the event side, it's really the same story. I think the, the history is equipment folks were looking for a way to generally include their wife in the business or children um, that might not have been interested on the equipment side. So they saw an opportunity in events. Um, they knew they knew a lot about rental so they added a, they needed to add some inventory whether it's tables chairs tents and you know they had people in their family that were more creative and wanted to be in rental and, and wanted to be on the creative side so that really is how the event rental piece of it came about and now that's right its own significant segment of the industry um, as well. And they're now, you know, where they before might have been part of an equipment store. Most of our rental store members are now they're standalone event rental stores um, and, you know, significant pieces of, of their communities because every memorable event, whether it's a wedding or graduation or fundraiser, you know, whether it takes place outdoors or indoors, requires that event rental inventory to make it happen. So kind of long story short, a little bit of the history of, of equipment and event rental, who our members are and the types of uh, products and equipment that they rent. Cool. So here you are a couple of years into managing this association, getting your feet wet, getting comfortable, probably feeling pretty good about life. And then here comes COVID. What happened? Yeah, you know, my my run from 2016 to uh, February of 2019 was was pretty freaking awesome. Um, that show in Orlando was our largest show in history. Everybody's feeling good. And then, uh, you know, we get sideswiped by uh, by the pandemic. And, you know, looking, you know, from this this perspective, looking back now, I think it'll be good for us. Right. It it. it you need these things to whack you in the side of the head to make you look at your business a little differently. Um, I think it's it's taught us all um, to maybe re reprioritize some things in our life. So I'm going to walk away from this with positive takeaways uh, from what happened. But you know, there were certainly um, there was certainly a lot of pain in the process over the last few years. You know, families that 
that lost people to this pandemic um, has got to be heartbreaking. Certainly businesses that went um, went belly up because they they didn't have enough cash. They didn't have enough, uh, you know, they weren't driving any revenue and didn't see a path forward. Um, you know, so there, there's definitely been some, some destruction along the way. But overall, um, the industry is is right now in a very healthy place. Um, equipment pretty much came through this thing, um, aside from a few months of being sidelined. Uh, and, you know, they, they never stopped chugging along. Event, as we know, was flat on its back for all of 20 and, you know, some of 2021, but has come back really, really strong. So 22 is, uh, is shaping up to be uh, a, a really good year. Hopefully we've learned some lessons uh, over the past few years and um, going forward, we'll, we'll deal with the labor shortage and part shortage and, you know, whatever happens with the monetary policy, we'll, we'll figure all that out. Um, but I, I hope we, we all come through this with, with a better understanding of how to relate to each other personally and, and how to run our businesses a little more efficiently. So Tony, it's, your perspective is a little different and a little interesting. I know ARA has employees, and although you're a nonprofit, you're responsible for them and all that. But you also represent the needs and interests of what, 15,000 members, I think it is, or thereabouts, 12,000. And so you're sitting there and the pandemic hits and the world's in chaos. What are some of the things you did? And what are some of the things you wish you did that you didn't do? Yeah, that's a that's a fair question on me. So we um, we've got about fifty five hundred members, which is a business owner that represent uh, about eleven thousand locations, rental locations in the U.S. and Canada. And you know, I think the first thing um, we all did was just stop and look and listen. Um, I fielded a lot of calls from people that were really desperate um, to understand. What was happening? You know, I think we we all had a visibility in our little circle, whether it was our circle of family and friends or in our community, but didn't really have a sense in, as as to what was happening. You know, on a national scale, certainly, you know, you can see things on the news, but you don't really know what's happening with you know stores in California, New York, Texas, Florida, right? Like, what's going on if you're a small store in Pennsylvania? So just listening to people's stories. Um, mostly sad stories they were heartbreaking you know people talking about you know family members on a ventilator um all of their bookings being wiped out um, not sure how much cash they had how long they would be able to last and there's not a lot of advice you can give to those people right other than to listen and and try to empathize with them and and in their situation and there were a lot of folks like that i think that just outpouring of desperation and emotion and concern for the first couple months was was pretty overwhelming because nobody had any real any good news to share so the listening and understanding to try to figure out like what what it is we can do as an association to have a positive impact on our industry um was certainly the first order of business and what did you do well, you know, as we started hearing about, the, you know, the business side of things is what we obviously had to focus on. We were listening to all the personal stories, but it's it's kind of hard to, to get involved on a, on a personal level as a trade association. So the first thing we understood was all this confusion around 
what, what's an essential business, right? How do I get classified as an essential business? Because a lot of municipalities were making decisions on who closes and who stays open. So we, uh, we got to work right away building that program called Clean Safe Essential to give our industry a rallying cry, right? Some tools and resources that we could all use to say that we were doing our part to keep our customers um, and our, our rental store employees and any visitor you know, safe while they were in the store, right? There was a set of protocols that we all understood were important to follow. And we pulled that under the umbrella of Clean Safe Essential for, uh, to give ourselves a way to talk to municipalities and regulators to say, hey, we, people need to rent equipment, right? They, they need to fix, fix broken pipes when they happen. People need tents, right? There, were, there was a call for, um, for outdoor venues, whether they were testing locations or temporary hospitals. We needed a way to be open, and Clean Safe Essential gave us the the tools and resources and ability to talk to folks to say that we were we were an organized industry that understood how to respond here and that we needed to be open through the pandemic. What about your big trade show that was coming up? How far away was the trade show? And how, tell us about the stress level of deciding when to kill that and how you went about that the first time around. Yeah, that's so, you know, getting getting some resources into our members' hands was the first priority. Then looking out on the horizon to figure out what that means specifically for the association, right? And our PL was 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 sort of the next priority. Um, so having had our, our trade show in February was very uh, fortunate timing for us. So we had a wonderful show in February and we had some we had some time, right? We had a bit of a runway to to land on here to figure out what we were going to do in 21. And as soon as it became apparent that the, um, that the spring of 21 was not going to happen for anybody having large gatherings, um, we, uh, we had a meeting with the, the uh, officers and we sat down and we just brainstormed, what are our options? Because let's take New Orleans in February off the table. It's not going to happen. So we can just cancel that one meeting and, and look forward to 2022, or we can try to reschedule New Orleans, or we can just try to do something altogether different. And we came up with the idea of looking for another venue later in the year in a location that we knew would be exciting for our members. And we landed on Las Vegas in October um, of, for 2021. And yeah, a timing is not ideal. October was a busy time for people that right, had missed out on revenue. So they were, they were very revenue hungry and were not interested in, uh, in short staffing their, their event or equipment orders. So uh, we knew that the timing was, was less than perfect, but it ended up being a really good show for our members that absolutely needed to see their, the, the manufacturers and, and um, products uh, to continue to bolster their inventory, right? Building for the future. Um, it was probably um, surprising to us how many manufacturers told us, how many exhibitors told us that they had their best sales show ever um, because their, their time with buyers was so much greater, um, right? Because people that typically might bring eight or 10 people to the show came with one or two people and they were there to buy. 
So manufacturers um, weren't spending a lot of time talking about um, talking to people who were not making buying decisions. So from that standpoint, um, trade show in October, I think worked really well for our attendees and certainly for the exhibitors that were in Las Vegas. And then that forced our decision on, um, on Anaheim for 2022, which again, in hindsight was, was very fortuitous because one of the options was to just skip, uh, New Orleans and just look forward to Anaheim. But I don't think that Anaheim uh, right now would be the best place to have our trade show. Um, we know that California is kind of a tough place for a lot of uh, folks on the East Coast to get to. Um, California has certainly you know, got a more restrictive environment uh, than some other states. So I, I think it was absolutely the right decision to, uh, to kill the trade show in February of 21, killed the trade show in February of 22 in favor of the, the show in October for, of last year in Las Vegas. Tell us about your team in Moline, a fairly small town, and everyone used to come into the office and working in your very cool office, I think. And how'd that all go? Did you all go remote, even such a small town, or was COVID bigger concern, less a concern, just as much a concern. What did you do? Did you stop commuting? How, how did all that work? Yeah, that that was probably the toughest part for me because these are right. This is this is our team, right? This is our team of of sixty people, um, most of which uh, reside in the Quad Cities in Moline. And so, you know, now you're making decisions that uh, that impact your team's lives. Right, where where they work, when they work, how they work. So um, you know, there there really was not much of a decision to make early on. Um, everybody was capable of working remotely. So inside of uh, forty eight hours in mid March, we sent everybody home and closed the building, um, and everybody was was up and productive um, within two days. Uh, there were a couple of people that had some connectivity issues, some you know some things that work much better on site. You know, when you're connected to the server. Um, but we worked all that out and uh, everybody was was very productive for that period. I think just we all felt good about staying online, staying connected with each other and being available for our members. I mean, that was certainly the the overriding concern that, that we all had as association staff. And then as we, uh, you know, we started working through the, the various ebbs and flows of, uh, of COVID, you know, we've, we went in the building, we closed the building again. We went in with masks, we closed the building again. So right now we're on our third building closure. Um, we came back after the holidays and there were, there were just too many people that had either tested positive or were exposed. Um, and there's, you know, every... The thing that I have learned through this, through the COVID experience was that there was no policy that worked for everyone or every situation because it was all really unique. You know, whether you thought you were exposed, whether you knew you were exposed, whether you were, you know, you tested positive, every one of those situations had really interesting nuances around it that, that generally required some dialogue, which takes a lot of time. So we were, you know, there were probably of our of our 50 or so people, 55 that, that are based in Moline, 15 to 20 of them were in some sort of COVID protocol after the holidays. And we said, you know, this is just too hard to manage. Let's just close the building and, and send everyone home again. So we did that. And now uh, we are looking at a February 28th reopening of the building. Um, we will do that as a mask optional um, 
from a mask optional standpoint. So the hope again is that um, we will be open without uh, having to close again, out having without having to make any more, you know, draconian measures to get people back in the building because it's just there's only so much you can do on on a video meeting. Um, it, it's a great plan B if you can't sit across the table from somebody, especially in a larger group when as much of the work that we do involves larger groups getting together and debating issues, right? Brainstorming, figuring out what we're, you know, what we do next. We just have to be able to, to be together face-to-face uh, -to, -face to do that kind of work. So I'm excited to open the building again and hopefully stay open for the duration. Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> Tell me, is there anything looking back the last two years you wish you'd done differently? Um, I'm sure there is, I mean, but nothing that stands out as, you know, that I, that I think was, um, was a huge error or big mistake. There's certainly, timing was always an issue here. Whenever we, we would work a week to put together a communication and feel so good about every word and every decision. And no sooner would we put that out that, you know, two, three days later, some new guidance would come out that just blew up everything we just, we just said. So I don't know that there was a lot we could do differently around, you know, maybe the timing of some of our communications. Um, I think what we did pretty well with our staff was stay in front of them with what we were thinking. So before we made any decisions, we would go out and say, hey, here's the data that we're dealing with. Here are some of the issues that we have across the spectrum with our 55, 60 people that we have to accommodate. And here's generally where I think we need to land. And most people, when they understood the inputs to the decision-making process, I think knew that it was going to be a compromise, like you were never gonna land you know, on one end of the spectrum or the other. So there was going to be you know, an, imperfect, an imperfect solution for everyone, but explaining the what's, right? The inputs to the decision and the timing around the decision, for the most part, I think helped people stay with us and come along with us and not get overly frustrated or anxious about what was happening and why it was happening. So, you know, all in all, um, I'm sure there are, are things we could have done differently. There's probably more, I could have communicated more for sure. You know, people, nobody loves a communication vacuum, um, but there was only so much we could say, right? Be, before it just becomes redundant. So I, I thought we communicated on a, on a fairly regular cadence um, and we explained where we were and what we were thinking and what was going to happen next so that folks, if they had any, any information or insight to add, had the opportunity to speak up and, and tell us what they were thinking. One more tough question for you. What have you learned about yourself the last two years that you've ever knew before? Well, um, gotcha. <laughs> This is going to probably sound bad, um, but I, I felt that I was connected to our business in a, in a very sort of visceral way. But through this period, I, really, I realized that it really wasn't the business right? that, that I was connected to. It was the people in the business. 
So whether it was our members, you know, hearing stories from them that, I mean, literally makes you want to cry or talking to people on staff um, who we have personal relationships with, but they go so much deeper now. I think the depth of the relationships um, that that you you really need to have is probably something that I learned. You know, most of us, I'm in my mid 50s. I think we grew up in an environment in, in, in the corporate world where you didn't those kind of those deep personal relationships weren't really encouraged, right? There was sort of always this arm's length sort of um, distance that you wanted to have with people. I think they always thought, well, you know, if I have to fire you, I, I don't want to kind of know what the personal impact's going to be. And throughout this, I, I think I've, I've become much more in tune with the need and desire to want to have really deep personal relationships with people so that you do understand the impact. And, you know, it's not about, you know, worrying about if you're going to have to, to fire somebody or not, but it's just about being able to understand them and hopefully um, have a better relationship with them because you're dealing with the person, right? Whether it's personal, professional, really blend, you know, kind of fades away really quickly. Um, at the end of the day, it's one person um, and you, and you have to be connected with them if you really want to get the most out of them and have them get the most out of their experience with you. And the irony about it, and I agree with you hundred percent is, but it took moving to a virtual world to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. Very true. Tony, thank you so much for your insights and very thoughtful and we appreciate it. And I know our listeners appreciate it. And thanks for all the help you do for the work you do for the American Rental Association. I encourage our listeners Go look for that ARA sign when you look, need your next piece of equipment. And uh, appreciate everything, Tony. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us today on AMI Sites with your host, Ami Kassar, the foremost SBA thought leader. Make sure you visit us at multifunding.com where you can meet our advisory team and learn more about how we help entrepreneurs fund their future.